With Siyata Dishmaya, now let's continue, let's continue with understanding what it is that we're saying when we're davening, when we daven the Shema, when we daven Amidah, when we're davening in general, what are we saying? And it's important for us to understand what what we ask of Hashem and what we say to Hashem because then where is your true connection to Hashem if you're simply just saying words without any meaning or depth to it? And so now let's continue with our lessons here and we're learning here in the part of the Amidah. So now let's start with the, the next section, which is when we say, you bestow ultimate good kindnesses upon your creations. And so now here's a question. Is there such a thing as bad kindnesses? Uh, so what is the symbolism of God as our shield nowadays? The literal trans- translation is he bestows good kindnesses. Are there evil kindnesses? So any an evil kindness is an oxymoron. Moreover, David Amalek declares that God is good to all and his compassion upon all his works. So if God is good to all, he doesn't dispense evil to any. So how then are we to explain this most difficult praise? So God, by definition, is good. And indeed, when we bid farewell, we say goodbye. An expression taken from the old English, God be with you. Right. So God's goodness is manifest in his creating a magnificent universe, magnificent universe crowned by man whom him created in his image. And of course, God did not need to create anything. Our creator is perfect and complete without his creations. He didn't need us. He doesn't need us at all. So thus, when God created this world, he did so out of pure kindness. And with this in mind, we might pose a fundamental question challenging belief in God. How can a good God permit evil in the world? And why were 1.5 million innocent Jewish children killed in the Holocaust, even as their Nazi murderers found refuge in South America? And why are there catastrophic famines, pandemics, poverty, and natural disasters such as tsunamis and earthquakes? Why are children born deformed or with serious disabilities that will affect them for the rest of their lives? And much has been written about these challenging questions. In fact, there is an entire field known as theodicy that attempts to address them. Now let's consider a possible approach based on David Amalek's Psalms, the Tehillim. Let's believe, we believe, right, that ultimately whatever God does is for the good. Even what we perceive as evil, when viewed through the limited scope of our lifetimes, has ultimate meaning and vindication in God's eternal plan. In the the 23rd Psalm, Psalm 23, God is depicted as the compassionate shepherd, while the Jewish people are portrayed as his trusting flock. And though I walk in the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And so sheep tread carefully down a steep mountain path, deep into the valley of the shadow of death. Well, where any misstep can near, near the cliff edge can be fatal. And they feel safe because their shepherd constantly watches over them. And he uses his staff, a shepherd's crook, which he gently places around the neck of straying lamb. And occasionally, though a lamb gets too close to the edge, beyond the range of the shepherd's staff, and the shepherd has no choice but to apply a quick smack of his rod to keep him in line before it's too late. And even though the innocent lamb has no idea what would have happened had he gone over the edge and can't understand why he suffered this sudden, unexpected pain, he trusts in his shepherd. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
And like the innocent flock of sheep, we place our full trust in Hashem. Even when he applies the rod, we believe that it's meant for our ultimate good, possibly to spare us from a worse fate. We believe that whenever one experiences suffering in life, it's ultimately an act of God's loving kindness, though from our perspective, we can't comprehend how this could be possible. And yet even though we accept the concept that everything God does is for the best, we also pray that God not put our faith to the test. And when we pray to God for a good life or good kindnesses, we're really asking for the kind of goodness and kindness that's readily evident to all. Good health, prosperity, success in our endeavors, and the love of family and friends. And now where it says here, when we're davening, it says, you have created, own everything. So when God created the universe and his countless creations, he brought them into being with the power of his words. Let there be light. Let the waters beneath the heavens gather to one place. Let the waters teem with teeming living creatures and fowl that fly above the earth. However, when God created Adam, the prototype of humanity, he molded him personally from the dust of the earth and made him in his image. Our rabbis refer to Adam as a handiwork of the Holy One, blessed be he. So Adam Arishon, unlike any other creature on earth, had a relationship with God. And while Adam's body derived from the dust, his soul descended from heaven. And when the Almighty breathed the breath of life into Adam, that divine breath, that neshima in Hebrew, became Adam's soul, or neshama. And Adam was at, a, was at once a physical and spiritual being, fashioned specifically to be God's emissary on earth. And God said, let us make men in our image after our likeness. They shall rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and over the animals, the whole earth. So Adam and Ishan surely realized that all the beauty and bounty of this good world belongs to the one who created it. And all of mankind, indeed, every creature in the universe must come to recognize God's sovereignty. And the translation here in our context is literally, and you have acquired or own everything. Does one who creates something own it? And according to the Talmud, the answer is emphatic yes. An artisan acquires a utensil by the improvement he makes in it. And surely then, God, the ultimate artisan who fashioned man and created the universe out of nothing, ex nihilo, owns all that he made. Recognizing this fact, we owe him our total allegiance as Adom Olam, the master and owner of the universe. And now here, now when we say in our davening, you remember the kindnesses of the fathers and I will and, and will bring a redeemer to their children's children for his namesake. So you, what we're saying is that you are the God of history and you guide our destiny. Therefore, you recall our patriarch's kindnesses. What does God's remembering the kind deeds of our forefathers have to do with this promise to bring a redeemer? And what does it mean that God will be doing this for his namesake with love? And so the clue to deciphering these questions can be found in Rashi's commentary. I appeared to Abraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov as God Almighty. But with my name, I did not make myself known to them. And Rashi comments that God did indeed speak to our forefathers by utilizing his four-letter name, the Yud and the He 
and the vav and the hey so meaning he was is and will always be so god promised them that their children will be as many as the stars in heaven and the dust of the earth he told abraham that his children would be slaves in a foreign land but reassured him that he would take them out with great wealth our forefathers never lived to see God's keep, God keep his promise of redemption. But God remembered their kindnesses and kept his promises to their descendants. And this is the sense of the future tense of his name. He will always be. And so although God revealed himself to our forefathers with his name, he wasn't recognized by them in that attribute during their lifetime as the promise was still unfulfilled. And consequently, we hold fast to the belief that just as our forefathers did, that God will fulfill his promise to bring a redeemer. The eternal one of Israel does not deceive God and only God can be fully trusted to keep his promises for he alone is eternal. And then we say with love, which, which means that God chose his people Israel with love. As we say each day in our prayers, his love for us is the greatest love of all. His love for us is eternal, everlasting. With your love for us, you will redeem us and bring Mashiach. And here when we say that you are a king who helps us to help ourselves, though he's all powerful, God still expects us to do everything we can do to help ourselves before he comes to our assistance. When Yaakov prepared to meet Esau, after years of estrangement, he feared that Esau still bore a grudge against him and he sought to kill him. He geared up for their encounter in three ways. He offered gifts to appease Esau. He prepared to wage war if need be and he prayed. So why didn't Yaakov simply pray since God always assured him of his protection? And what need was there for the gifts and the battle preparations? Yaakov knew that whatever he could take, whenever and wherever he could take appropriate action, God wanted him to do so. We must do whatever is within our power to help ourselves, even as we pray to God for our success. And when we say the king who saves us when all else fails... So according to Rabbi Shimon, Raphael Hirsch, Shimshon, Rabbi Shimshon, Raphael Hirsch, the word here, salvation, derives from his first two letters, the Yud and the Shin, meaning existence. We experience God's existence, his presence when he saves us, particularly after all else fails. And it is then when we fully realize that we can rely on no one else. And when we say the king who shields us from harm, God offers us the highest level of security and protection. He shields us from harm and dangers without our even realizing it. Our immune system fights off disease without our awareness that it's actually happening. And when we're driving on the highway, God is watching over us to protect us from potentially dangerous accidents, tire blowouts, driver fatigue, or car malfunction at high speeds. These are among the miracles and wonders that happen to all of us behind the scenes every moment of the day and night. And when we say the shield of Abraham, so the shield of Abraham is God's invisible shield that protected Abraham from his enemies in a hostile world. That very same shield enabled his children to survive and thrive throughout the millennia against all odds. And God's presence is the ever-present shield that protects the Jewish people behind the scenes on many occasions. In the mid-19th century, a czarist official once posed a serious question to the great Rosh Hashiva of Elohim. Rav Itzele, Berlin, <coughs> says, Rabbi, your Bible states, and he was referring to Psalm 117, 
that nations of the world should praise God because God's kindness to his people have been overwhelming. So why should we, among the nations of the world, praise God for his kindnesses to Jews? You, not we, should be praising him. And Rav Itzel replied, if it were up to you in your associations in St. Petersburg, our situation would have been far worse than it already is. I have no doubt that you have planned countless decrees against our people, more brutal than any we have experienced. And it is only because God arranged events behind the scenes that you cannot put them into effect. And that is why you must praise God, for only you can fully appreciate how God saved his people from disaster. And when we say here, divine might, and what we daven, we're saying, you are mighty forever, my master. You revive the dead, greatly able to save. And during the winter months between Sukkot and Pesach, we add, who causes the wind to blow and the rain to fall? So in many communities during the summer months between Pesach and Sukkot, we add, who causes the dew to descend? And then you sustain the living with kindnesses. You revive the dead with great compassion. You support the fallen, heal the sick, and free the captives, and keep faith with those who sleep in the dust. Who is like you, master of mighty deeds? And to whom can you be compared? A king who brings death and restores life and causes redemption to flourish. You are trusted to revive the dead. God, you are the source of all blessing. Who revives the dead? And so when we say here, bringing the gift of life to the world, our sages teach that us that sleep is a form of death. And when we go to sleep at night, we entrust our soul to the Almighty and we pray that he will restore it to us when we awake the next morning. And when we awaken, we express our appreciation to God for another day of the gift of life. We say, thank you, God, for restoring my soul. According to the commentaries, this blessing highlights God's gift of restoring our souls every morning and also bringing back to life those souls who slept in the earth. And indeed, God also brings the world back to life during the seasons of the year. God sustains all life in our world. He showers the earth with life-giving rain. God directs the rains to nourish the parched ground and makes it possible for the myriads of living things to eat, grow, and regenerate. In the spring, the world is stunned by the miracle of nature coming back to life. The radiant colors of the flowers and their fragrant scents, the majesty of the trees and saplings clothed in their verdant coats of leaves. Poets can only envision God as, as the divine sculpture and artist of nature because no human can create such splendor. So we also enjoy the springtime of our lives as we mature intellectually and experientially and go out into the world. The challenges and growth in this early period of our lives inspire us to greater achievements. The beauty of spring extends throughout the summer and we grow from strength to strength. And in the summer of our lives, we are in the prime of our time in this world. Our lives are filled with sunshine. We have developed self-confidence and are open to the many opportunities that life has to offer. And in the fall, our mature lives are reflected in the changing colors of the season. No longer is the world painted in bright, radiant hues. It's now colored in drab browns and grays. Preparation for the winter has begun. The birds began to migrate south while bears and other creatures hibernate. The leaves fall from the trees and in this, the autumn of our personal lives, we begin to fully recognize our issues of aging and we must deal with our own human frailties and those of our loved ones. And then the winter arrives. The heavens are shrouded in darkness. The earth is blanketed with snow, silence, cold, death. There will be a tomorrow for us after we're gone. Will there be? So spring returns again, brings back life. It's a new world bathed in sunshine and warmth. And just as spring heralds in the rebirth of life, God will surely keep his promise to bring back life 
to those who dwell in the dust. And so in the inner meaning of Gevros, the revival of the dead is mentioned three times in this blessing. You revive the dead. You revive the dead with great mercy. And God, you are the source of all blessing who revives the dead. And the rationale for this repetition is that they represent three kinds of revival of the dead. The Abu Draham offers the following explanation. The first revival relates to one who's sleeping and is considered in a sense as if he were dead. Because sleep is one sixtieth of death. And certain during this time, the Holy One, blessed be he, he brings the clouds and causes the rain and due to fall in order to provide man with livelihood. And then, and then he returns his soul in the morning. And the second kind of revival is rainfall, which is likened to revival of the dead. Without rain, plants won't grow, and the face of the earth will be dead. And the third is the ultimate revival of those who have passed on throughout the ages, about whom we close this blessing. You are entrusted to revive the dead. God, you are the source of all the blessing, who revives the dead. And why is this blessing called Gevurot, like God's acts of mightiness, when it focuses primarily on only one of God's many Gevurot, Techiyas HaMesim, reviving the dead. So before we discuss this blessing of divine might, we have to address a fundamental question. So uh, the, 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 the Hebrew word for might is Gevura, expressed in a singular form, while the title of the blessing, you know, in the plural translates as mites. And what's the message of the two Gevurots? One of these mites refers to God as a warrior in battle. God the strong and the mighty, God who is a mighty warrior, but there is much more to God's might than his obvious power on the battlefield. There is another subtler kind of strength that God possesses. He who is slow to anger is better than a strong man, and a master of his passions is better than a conqueror of a city. And the special strength is described in ethics of the fathers. Who is mighty? He who conquers his sinful desires. For us, the meaning of the wise saying is that we must learn to overcome those cravings and desires which are damaging to us spiritually and physically. We must demonstrate self-constraint. But how does God show self-constraint in his relations with his, with his creatures? God controls two competing forces, so to speak, the attribute of judgment and of compassion. So by right... When an individual sins, justice, following the strict letter of the law, demands, demands an immediate punishment commensurate with the sin. The attribute of compassion appeals to God to give the sinner another chance and extension to allow him to repent. And when we seek God's mercy, especially during the 10 days of repentance, we recite a prayer that was formulated by God himself describing his unbounded compassion for our people. And among these attributes are slowness to anger and preserver of kindness for thousands of generations. And so in one of the most powerful passages in the Talmud, we learn that God himself prays, so to speak. And what does he pray? May it be my will that my mercy conquers my anger and that my mercy overcomes my stricter attributes and that I act towards my children with the attribute of mercy that I go beyond the boundary of strict judgment and treating them with kindness. And so God often applies the attribute of compassion over judgment because he is slow to anger and declares, I do not desire the death of the wicked one, but rather that the wicked one return from his way that he may live. And God suspends judgment for thousands of generations. And this is God's attribute of self-restraint. And we'll see how the Ishmael will continue with these lessons. Bezat Hashem. 
you know, Ribbono Shalom helping us to understand clearly what it is that we say when we speak to God. Baruch Adonai Leolam, Amen, Ve Amen.